Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Sarah Thompson, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. Atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease is the foremost cause of global mortality. In 2022, the National Lipid Association provided an updated scientific statement revising the definition of statin intolerance with the distinction of two categories, partial and complete intolerance. Join pharmacist Andrea Aguayo to examine the updated definition of statin intolerance, strategies for management, and evidence supporting alternative agents. LDL plays a large role in cardiovascular disease. Statins have been shown to reduce LDL and cardiovascular events. In large outcome trials, which have made them therapeutic um, clear objectives and our role in wanting to use them for clinical practice. Despite their effectiveness, there has been significant challenges in using these agents for our patients today. For due to a phrase that we all know, called statin intolerance. For the learning objectives, we will recognize the National Lipid Association updated definition of statin intolerance. We will describe management strategies for statin intolerant patients and identify the role of PCSK9 inhibitors, glycerin, and bambidoic acid in statin intolerant patients. We'll begin with learning objective one to summarize the National Lipid Association, NLA, updated definition of statin intolerance. Statin intolerance is prevalent in our patients using statins due to discontinuation that ranges anywhere from two to 50%. Despite the clinical variability of muscle fatigue, aches, pains, this has described, this has provided a problem for providers to create a diagnostic and management criteria for these patients. Prior to 2014, there was a lack of standardized approach in how to manage and diagnose these patients. In 2014, the NLA provided a scientific statement on statin intolerance, how to diagnose these patients and how to manage these patients with developing muscle-induced pain and symptoms. This is an exact definition from the 2014 National Lipid Association scientific statement on statin intolerance. Statin intolerance is a clinical syndrome characterized by the inability to tolerate at least two statins, one statin at the lowest started daily dose and another statin at any daily dose. This can be due to symptoms or labs, which are temporarily related to statin treatment and reversible upon statin discontinuation. In 2022, statin intolerance was updated from the National Lipid Association and they defined it as statin intolerance as one or more adverse effects associated with statin therapy, which resolves or improves with dose reduction or discontinuation and can be classified as a complete inability to tolerate any dose of a statin or partial intolerance, which is the inability to tolerate the dose necessary to achieve the patient's therapeutic objectives. So they did define statin intolerance into two different categories, complete intolerance and partial intolerance. 
They define complete intolerance as the inability to tolerate any dose or regimen of a statin. For partial intolerance, they defined it as the ability to tolerate a lower dose of a statin than is required to achieve the desired therapeutic objective. Furthermore, they broke it down into um, recommendations for partial intolerance, either alternative statins, intermittent dosing, or adjunctive non-statin therapies. And for, incomplete, for complete intolerance, they did recommend non-statin therapies. I also wanted to highlight some key points from the NLA statement. So the incidence of statin intolerance is reported in five to 30% of patients. However, the NLA did, did state that complete intolerance is actually less than 5%. And they also wanted um, clinicians to remember about the nocebo effect that can play a role, which is a phenomenon of negative perceptions of a patient on a therapy that causes that therapy to have more negative effects than it otherwise would. Upon statin intolerance, we wanna make sure that we modify risk factors for patients that are predisposed to adverse effects, ensuring that we address them so that these adverse effects can be mitigated. Additionally, they also said that most patients can tolerate some dose of a statin. It's just finding that regimen that needs to be um, evaluated either by changing the statin, changing the dose, or changing the dosing frequency. But making sure that we're focusing on a personalized approach for our patients. When we're trying to find a statin that our patients can tolerate, they do recommend not delaying other lipid modifying therapies during that time because you may expose the patient to higher levels of LDL in those patients that are at higher risk. So for our first assessment question for today, based on the NLA 2022 scientific statement on statin intolerance, what should be the recommended initial step when managing a patient who experiences muscle-related symptoms for the first time while on a statin therapy? A, discontinue statin therapy immediately. B, consider rechallenging with a lower dose. C, switch to a different class of lipid-lowering drugs. Or D, assess for potential contributing factors. I'll give the audience a few minutes to respond. I see answers being sent in as I speak. Well, it looks like the answers are slowly changing. Um, for patients that experience initially muscle-related statins, we wanna make sure that we're addressing potential contributing factors because these can be mitigated and treated accordingly before making additional therapy changes, such as either discontinuing the dose, changing the statin, or even initiating other statin therapies. So the correct answer is D. For our second learning objective, we're gonna describe management strategies for statin intolerant patients. For patients who develop statin-induced muscle symptoms, there are risk factors that can be associated who pre which predispose certain individuals. This can be advanced age, over 80 years old, female gender, or a family history of myopathy, as well as a low BMI. However, there are modifiable risk factors that can be um, treated if a patient develops statin-induced muscle symptoms. These are uncontrolled comorbidities, 
drug-drug interactions, lifestyle factors. So if a patient's involved in strenuous exercise that they're normally not involved in, excess alcohol use, or grapefruit or cranberry juice greater than one quart per day. These can increase the levels of statins in our body, increasing the risk of muscle-related symptoms. The NLA also mentions vitamin D deficiency as a modifiable factor that should be addressed. However, there are no clinical trials to date to confirm if vitamin D deficiency and muscle satin-induced muscle symptoms are related. The evidence is conflicting whether or not vitamin D deficiency should be treated if patients develop muscle, muscle symptoms. But I wanted to dive deeper into muscle vitamin D deficiency. So vitamin D deficiency symptoms and statin myopathy overlap. Patients who have vitamin D deficiency are often on statin therapy. These are patients with type two diabetes, obesity, or CKD. There are also risk factors that may increase the patient's risk for developing vitamin D deficiency. So it's important to see and evaluate the patient that may have these risk factors predisposing them to vitamin D deficiency. Now then, um, United States Preventive Service Task Force does provide a statement regarding vitamin D deficiency and screening for it. They had stated that the harms, the benefits do not outweigh the harms in terms of modifying or um, screening for patients with, that are asymptomatic. However, the National Lipid Association does recommend ruling out modifiable risk factors such as vitamin D deficiency in patients that are experiencing muscle-related symptoms. We can also think about alternative statins. We can trial a low dose of the same statin or a different statin and then titrate. We can think about switching to a hydrophilic statin with lower risk of myopathy. This could be potentially resuvastatin or pravastatin. The thought is that these statins do not enter the cells as easily as lipophilic statins. So they have greater hepatoselectivity. The lipophilic statins also are heavily metabolized by the liver, which can produce meta metabolites that potentially can cause muscle-related symptoms. However, the evidence is conflicting whether or not these statins truly have lower risk of statin-induced myopathies. So, but it's something that can be tried in our patients to make sure that all um, alternative strategies are tried. We can also think about intermittent dosing. This is better than no statin therapy at all. There are no studies on intermittent dosing and the effect on cardiovascular morbidity or mortality. However, intermittent dosing can reduce LDL anywhere from 12 to 30%, whereas low intensity statins can reduce LDL by 20 to 30%. If we're gonna consider intermittent dosing, we wanna make sure that we're choosing statins with a longer half-life, such as resuvastatin, which has a half-life of 19 hours, and atorvastatin, which has a half-life of 14 hours. And these are some examples of intermittent dosing based on the literature. It's also important to remember differential diagnosis. There are other diagnoses 
This is not an all-inclusive list. However, some of these have myopathy symptoms, and we want to make sure that we're not thinking that patients are having these muscle-related symptoms due to the statin, but could be due to a different diagnosis. This could be either fibromyalgia, peripheral arterial disease, Cushing syndrome, or adrenal insufficiency, polymyalgia rheumatica, or viral illnesses, such as HIV, influenza, or Epstein-Barr, which can be associated with viral myositis, which in turn release causes muscle pain and weakness, and can be thought of that they're being caused by the statin, but truly patients having a viral acute illness. So for our next assessment question, it will be a patient case. We have a 66-year-old female. She comes into the clinic with symptoms of muscle aches and pains. She asks if it could be from her atorvastatin, which is the only statin she's ever taken. She has a past medical history of type 2 diabetes, hypertension, dyslipidemia, fibromyalgia, osteopenia, and hypothyroidism. For her social history, she has no illicit drug use, she's a non-smoker, and drinks a few glasses of wine each night. Here are her medications and her labs and vitals. I will leave them on the screen for others to look at until I change it to the next slide for the assessment question. So for the assessment question, which of the following modifiable risk factors should first be addressed with this patient in determining for statin-induced muscle-related symptoms? A, vitamin D deficiency, B, drug-drug interactions, C, comorbidities, or D, lifestyle factors. All right, it looks like we have a, a good amount of answers coming through. So in addressing the patient in this visit, the thing that first can be addressed is the lifestyle factors. The patient drinks multiple glasses of wine each night. And yes, comorbidities, drug-drug interactions, and vitamin D deficiencies are other things that can be addressed, but the lifestyle factor is something that can be easily addressed and potentially mitigated to see if there's anything else contributing, such as potentially a drug-drug interaction, uncontrolled comorbidity, or even vitamin D deficiency. So for our third learning objective, we're gonna identify the role of PCSK9 inhibitors in glycerin and benthadoic acid in statin-tolerant patients. So I wanted to give an overview of the mechanism of action of these lipid-lowering agents. So we have statins, which competitively block the rate-limiting enzyme step in the mevalonic pathway, decreasing cholesterol biosynthesis. Higher up the pathway, we have benthadoic acid, which inhibits ATP citrate lyase, thus decreasing cholesterol biosynthesis. On the other side, we have our glycerin and PCSK9 inhibitors. Inclycerin is a small interfering RNA molecule which decreases the expression of PCSK9 mRNA, thus decreasing the production of PCSK9. This is where PCSK9 inhibitors also work. The role of PCSK9 enzyme is responsible for cleaving the LDL receptors on the hepatocytes. So by inhibiting the PCSK9 inhibitor, PCSK9 enzyme, we in turn allow the LDL receptors to stay on the hepatocytes and thus 
uptaking the cholesterol in our body. So I wanted to give a brief overview of the clinical trials that I'll be discussing today. We'll be talking about the clear outcomes trials, specifically over bembidoic acid and the clear, um, the cardiovascular benefits it can provide in primary and secondary prevention patients. For the Orion trial, we'll be going over in glycerin versus placebo in patients with ASCVD and how glycerin can impact LDL levels. And for the Huygens trial, we're going over evolucumab. We all know that PCSK9 inhibitors are already adopted by guidelines due to their LDL effect lowering, as well as cardiovascular um, reduction. However, the Huygens trial that I will be discussing today highlights a different viewpoint of the car other cardiovascular outcome trials because we'll be going over the changes on coronary plaque phenotype from evolucumab. So we'll be going over bembidoic acid. It's indicated for patients with heterozygous familial hypercholesteremia or established ASCVD for additional LDL lowering. It's used as an adjunct to diet and max tolerate statin therapy. We'll be discussing now the CLEAR outcomes trial. So for the CLEAR outcomes trial it involved almost 14,000 participants with ASCVD or high risk. They stated that patients were statin intolerant. However, they stated that statin intolerance based on the trial was patients unwilling or unable to trial statin therapy. They also included a four week run-in period where all the participants started taking the placebo at day one. And for four weeks, they were taking both placebo and adherence was assessed. If the participants had an adherence greater than 80%, they, they were included in the trial and randomized one-to-one -to, -one to receive bembidoic acid or placebo. The average treatment duration lasted about 3.7 years. So for the clear outcomes trials, I did not include all of the exclusion criteria, only some of that were notable, such as triglycerides greater than 500. In patients who had uncontrolled hypertension, diabetes, or hypothyroidism. Now for the clear outcomes trial primary outcomes, it was a four component composite of major adverse cardiovascular events, which included cardiovascular death, non-fatal MI, non-fatal stroke, or coronary revascularization. And for the secondary outcomes, there were three key secondary outcomes, which included three component maze of cardiovascular death, non-fatal MI, and non-fatal stroke. And for the secondary was fatal or non-fatal MI, and lastly, coronary revascularization for the third key secondary outcome. So as you can see here on the y-axis, we have cumulative incidence. So for the primary endpoint for bembidoic acid, you can see that there's a lower cumulative incidence for a treatment group versus placebo at 40.6 months, which also demonstrated statistical significance. On the right, you can see the key secondary endpoints demonstrating that bembidoic acid also had lower incidence compared to placebo demonstrating statistical significance. I also wanted to point out some secondary and safety endpoints. So for the secondary endpoints, you can see that bembidoic acid had a greater percent change in LDL at six months versus placebo. And for the safety endpoints, 
for muscle disorder, there was no, there was much, not much difference in the placebo versus the benvidoic group for muscle disorder. However, for hyperuricemia, gout, and cholithiasis, there was a greater incidence in our benvidoic group than placebo. So in conclusion, for the clear outcomes trials, there were some limitations and benefits. For the limitations, approximately 90% of patients were white in both groups. There was a four-week run-in period decreasing external validity because we don't know if patients in clinical practice actually have 80% adherence. As well as a subgroup analysis for benvidoic acid benefits, which favored the primary prevention cohort and not the secondary prevention cohort. For benefits, it did include 48 female participants compared to other cardiovascular outcomes, which didn't have that high of a number of female participants. It also included primary and secondary prevention, as well as only 20% of participants in both groups were on statin therapy. So benvidoic acid is associated with a lower incidence of MACE, improved cardiovascular outcomes long-term, and low LDL. I'll next be discussing nimclycerin. It's indicated for patients with heterozygous familial hypercholesteremia or ASCVD. In 2023, there was a label update which added the indication of primary primary hyperlipidemia. They also removed the use the, removed the use statement, which was cardiovascular mortality and morbidity, as well as a removal of four adverse effects from the safety section because there was no difference in the placebo group versus the treatment group, which was diarrhea, upper respiratory tract infections, pain in the extremities, and dyspnea. We'll next be talking about the Orion 10 trial. So for the Orion 10 trial, it, involved, it was involved 15, about 1,500 patients with ASCVD over 18 years old. For the exclusion criteria, I did also wanna highlight just some key points. A lot of patients, patients were excluded if they had a cardiovascular event under three months and uncontrolled hypertension. A lot of the patients were also on other lipid-lowering um, agents, such as statins or azetamide, with 89% of patients on statin therapy. I did want to point out that 69% of those patients were on high-intensity statin. So does this affect our LDL reduction? For the methods, patients um, were given subcutaneous injections of inclycerin or placebo at day one, day 90, 210, as well as day 540. So for the primary endpoints for the Orion 10 trial, it was the percent change in LDL from baseline to day 510 and the absolute change in LDL after day 90 to day 540. And for the secondary endpoint, it included an absolute change in LDLC from baseline to day 510. So for the Orion 10 trial, for the primary endpoint outcomes, you can see for the percent change in LDL from baseline, for the inclycerin group, there was a decrease of 52% versus placebo, demonstrating statistical significance. And for the secondary outcomes, which was change in LDL level, you can also see that inclycerin had a decrease of 54% versus placebo. I also wanted to highlight a pooled patient level analysis of the inclycerin trials, Orion 9, 10, and 11, 
Orion 10 and 11 had the same methods. However, Orion 11 was conducted in Europe and South Africa. Orion 9 was over heterozygous um, hypercholesteremia. And all of the trials included involved about 3,600 participants. And as you can see, there was a higher injection site reactions versus um, placebo in our treatment group, as well as an increased cases observed with our bronchitis in our treatment group versus placebo. There were similar rates between groups in our liver, kidney, muscle, and hematological parameters, including nasopharyngitis rates. In conclusion, for the Orion 10 trial, the study, the study only included 89% of patients on maximum tolerated therapy. So can we really say that the LDL reduction was just based from glycerin? Participants were majority white and male gender. However, Orion 10 did demonstrate that infrequent dosing of glycerin does allow for prolonged low levels of LDL. The biannual dosing every six months of glycerin can lower LDL by approximately 50%. So it is a viable option for patients needing additional lipid-lowering therapy without greatly impacting medication burden. So now I'll be discussing our PCSK9 inhibitors, alirucumab and evolucumab. They're indicated to reduce the risk of myocardial infarction, stroke, coronary revascularization in adults with cardiovascular disease. They're also indicated to lower LDL in adults with primary hyperlipidemia, heterozygous familial hypercholesteremia. We'll next be discussing the Huygens trial. I did wanna briefly point out why these agents are adopted in clinical practice and guidelines, pointing out their cardiovascular outcome trials, the Odyssey and Fourier trials. For the Odyssey outcome trial, the primary endpoint was a composite death from coronary heart disease, non-fatal or non-fatal MI, non-fatal ischemic stroke, and unstable angina requiring hospitalization. For the four-year trial, the primary endpoint included major cardiovascular events, composite cardiovascular death, non-fatal MI, stroke, and unstable angina requiring hospitalization, including coronary revascularization. And as you can see, for the cumulative incidence for both our treatment groups, there was a lower rate for our alirucumab and our evolucumab trials. So for the Huygens trial, the purpose of the study was to determine the effect on, of evolucumab on plaque composition using optical coherence tomography, which I will be referring to as OCT. The Huygens trial highlights the use of PCSK9 inhibitors on coronary plaque phenotype. This demonstrates the reasoning why PCSK9 inhibitors are effective. So for, I wanted to provide a brief background on atherosclerotic plaques for those that may not be as familiar with these terminology. So for intravascular um, imaging, we have um, what is typically used in practice, intravascular ultrasound. This can de determine the lipid pool. However, OCT can is a catheter-based imaging technique that provides high resolution of lipid images which can also clearly define plaque composition and as well specifically lipid arc or fibrous cap thickness. Now with fibrous cap thickness, this will determine how stable the plaque is. And for lipid arc, 
the greater the lipid content, which we want a lower lipid arc in our patients. So the Huygens trial was a multi-center, double-blinded, placebo-controlled trial. It did include coronary stenosis with greater than 20% in patients during NSTEMI. Also, one image on OCT with a fibrous cap thickness greater than 120 micrometers with a lipid arc greater than 90 degrees. For the patients divided into each group, there was 80 patients that received evolucumab and 81% of 81 patients received the placebo. The exclusion criteria excluded patients with an EGFR under 30 and statin intolerant. I also wanted to point out the primary endpoint, which was a change in minimum FCT from baseline to week 50, and the secondary endpoint, which was a percent change in minimum FCT, as well as a change in average of minimum FCT and the change in maximum lipid arc. Also highlighting the amount of patients on high intensity statin. So for the Huygens trial, on the figure on the right, on the left, we have our baseline, the minimum fibrous cap thickness. And for the follow-up at week three, you can see that change in evolucumab versus placebo, demonstrating statistical significance. Now for the secondary endpoints, you can also see that there were favorable um, results for our minimum percent change in FCT, the average minimum of FCT of all images, as well as decrease in degrees for our evolucumab versus placebo, demonstrating statistical significance. So limitations for the Huygens trial, the study was only conducted in patients with AS ASC, unknown if similar effects in patients with more stable effects. The study also included about 97% of patients that were white and 71% of male patients between both groups. It also excluded patients with statin intolerance. Evolucumab, in addition to a statin after NSTEMI, provides optimal changes in stabilizing coronary atherosclerosis. These findings demonstrate the rationale for early intervention for lipid-lowering therapy in patients with recent ACS to lower risk for future cardiovascular events. Now, how are these medications used in clinical practice? So all of the agents that I discussed are brand name only medications at this time. There are patient assistance programs that can be used if a patient meets federal income requirements. For patients who have commercial insurance, you can also use a copay card to decrease the cost, but we wanna make sure that we have proper documentation because most of these medications will require a prior authorization from the insurance. And so making sure that we're one step ahead of the process. I also wanted to point out some clinical pearls from the agents that dis were discussed today. For bempedoic acid, it's a once daily oral tablet. It's also available as a combo tablet with ezetimibe, and it's not indicated for hi primary hyperlipidemia or homozygous familial hypercholesteremia. There are also significant adverse reactions that need to be taken into consideration when wanting to use this agent in our patients. For inclycerin, it's a subcutaneous injection, two doses per year during the maintenance. Per Mayo Clinic formulary, it can only be prescribed by cardiology or endocrinology. And it's not indicated for homozygous familial hypercholesteremia. As of right now for inclycerin, there are no cardiovascular morbidity or mortality outcomes 
that have come out. However, the Orion 4 trial is currently being conducted. We also wanna remember that the injections are given in clinic or the infusion center. So patients do need to come to receive those therapies. And for our PCSK9 inhibitors, we have our subcutaneous injection. We wanna make sure that we're prescribing SureClick auto injector, which is a much easier injection versus the auto body injector. The dosing and frequency of administration depends on the indication. And there are additional indications for evolucumab. These agents are recommended after azetamibe to max tolerate statin in our ACC AHA 2018 lipid guidelines. Now, what, do, what is some clinical guidance regarding the agents that I discussed today? The NLA provided, the NLA provided guidance when using non-statin therapies, how favoring those therapies that have data reducing cardiovascular outcomes. The American College of Cardiology in 2022 provided an expert consensus decision pathway on the role of non-statin therapies for LDL cholesterol in managing ASCVD. Their recommendations were alternative therapies in appropriate patient groups, considering patient factors, LDL goals, ASCVD risk. Now patients that have secondary prevention and they're not meeting the LDL goal below 55 or have a greater than LDL, greater than 50% LDL reduction, you can consider ezetimibe or PCSK9 inhibitors. Alternatively, you can also consider bembidoic acid or glycerin as a secondary option. So key points that I wanted to highlight that I hope you all take after this presentation, we wanna make sure that we don't abandon all efforts in finding a tolerable statin regimen. Most patients can tolerate some dose of a statin with a different statin, dose, or dosing schedule. We wanna rule out modifiable risk factors, drug-drug interactions, and lifestyle factors. We also wanna consider patient factors, preferences, and ASCVD risk when considering alternative statin therapies. And we also wanna make sure that we do not delay non-statin therapies in high-risk patients to limit exposure to elevated atherogenic lipoproteins. So for our final learning, um, final assessment question for today, which of the following medications is not indicated for primary hyperlipidemia in statin intolerant patients? A, inclycerin, B, alirucumab, C, bembidoic acid, and D, evolucumab. All right, it looks like the majority has answered C, bembidoic acid. So inclycerin and our PCSK9 inhibitors do have the indication for primary hyperlipidemia. Bembidoic acid is currently not indicated for patients that have primary hyperlipidemia. So in conclusion, we wanna make sure that we perform a comprehensive assessment to confirm true statin intolerance. We want to also ensure modifiable risk factors are evaluated prior to discontinuing statin therapy. We want to assess alternative dosing strategies for our partial statin intolerant patients. And we also want to consider alternative therapies based on patient factors and clinical guidance. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics. Thank you.